0: Please be seated. And as you take your seat, you can open your copy of the Word of God to 1 Corinthians 15. As we look at the first 11 verses this morning, as Paul speaks in this entire lengthy chapter on the resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ. And I would like to probe the first 11 verses this morning as we look at the word of God and as we look to the Lord to touch our hearts with his word and with the gospel. Let's pray together before we begin. Father, I pray now that the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart might be pleasing and acceptable in your sight. O Lord, our strength and our redeemer. Father, we wish to see and we long to see the Lord Jesus. So I pray that you would make yourself abundantly known by your spirit today in this setting. Lord, do all of your holy will in every life and we'll give you the praise and glory for all that you do And we make our prayer in Jesus' name. Amen. The passage is relatively simple this morning. I want you to notice four things that the Apostle Paul does concerning the gospel in general and the resurrection in particular. Number one, we see Paul's appeal to fully embrace the gospel in verses 1 and 2. And then secondly, Paul's outline of the gospel, and we see that in verses 3 and 4. Thirdly, Paul's list of resurrection appearances, and we see that in verses 5 through 7. And then finally, Paul's personal testimony in verses 8 through 11. So first of all, Paul's appeal to fully embrace the gospel. Now, some of the, and most of the modern translations... Don't do a stellar job of the first sentence there. It almost says, or it almost looks like Paul wants to make known what is already known. The thrust is not, I make known to you, but rather the Greek is, I would have you know. I would have you know. It is a strong statement. Paul is not reminding the Corinthians of the gospel as much as he is offering an intense appeal for the Corinthians to fully embrace the gospel and to give themselves to a life of obedience to it. Now this motive of Paul explains the subsequent comments as he tells the Corinthians and reminds them of their commitment. I want you to notice the little phrases here. First, They received the gospel. Paul is saying, in essence, God allowed you to see the truth of the gospel. That is a special gift. The Corinthians heard the good news from Paul. They professed belief in Jesus. That is, intellectually, they realized that Christ had risen from the grave, that Christ was indeed the Messiah. He says, not only did you receive the gospel, you stand on the gospel. That is to say, your entire life must be built on Christ and his word. This means you cannot stand with one foot on Christ and his word and the other foot on the philosophies and beliefs of this present world order, which contradict the truth of Scripture. Now, belief in Jesus is a supernatural thing, and it always demands repentance and faith. We turn from one life, and we turn to Christ. He is the object of our faith. Nowadays, we have all types of hyphenated Christians. You can't be a lying Christian. You can't be a gossiping Christian, a fornicating Christian, an embezzling Christian, a gay Christian. No, all of us have to come to the foot of the cross. And we have to repent of our sins. We have to see what God's word says and admit we don't measure up. All are sinners. And we express our sinfulness in various ways. And we all must repent and turn away from our sins when we exercise faith in Jesus Christ. He says, you not only received the gospel, you made your life to stand on it. It is your foundation. It is of the very essence of who you are as a child of God. He goes on to say, not only you received it, you stand on it, you are also saved by the gospel. That is, you refuse to entertain the notion that there are many paths to heaven or to paradise or to nirvana or whatever you'd like to call it. You refuse to allow a phony so-called gospel of self-improvement or a gospel of earthly prosperity to take the place of the gospel in your life, you actually believe the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. And therefore, you see your need to be rescued. And ladies and gentlemen, if you don't see the darkness in the world and the darkness in your own heart as a result of sin. You cannot see the light. Finally, he says they must hold fast to the gospel. Or he reminds them that this is what they committed to, receiving and standing on the gospel and realizing I'm saved by the gospel is not enough to continue to live by faith. Obedience and continuous faithfulness mark the redeemed. Now, what is Paul doing here? What is Paul doing? Well, he's reminding these Christians because you remember in Corinth, while they professed faith in Christ and they claimed to be Christians, there was so much sinful activity going on that it was hard to tell the Corinthians from the world. They were insecure, they had a party spirit. They were willing to listen to and even pay false apostles who would tickle their ears. They practiced sexual immorality, gross sexual immorality, all the time professing to believers. They had lawsuits. They abused Christian liberty as a license to sin. And there was improper behavior, improper doctrine. Even in this very chapter, Paul's going to have to correct heresy about the resurrection. And so he says it's not enough to believe, you've got to hold fast. That is, you've got to persevere in the faith. And the only way we persevere, ladies and gentlemen, is as God's Spirit enables us to persevere. So the material point is, while the Corinthians profess faith in Christ, their behavior presents little to no evidence of possessing the living Christ. And ladies and gentlemen, there's a great gulf fixed between professing and actually possessing saving faith in Christ. And Paul points out the possibility of the absence of saving faith when he says at the end of this verse, too, unless you believed in vain. I remind you of the parable of the sower and the seed. Seventy-five percent of those in that parable perished. There was only a small percentage who received God's word and believed it and acted upon it. It was the fulcrum of their life. And these others, they were, had an interest in that sort of thing that show up here and there. But Christ and his body was not essential to their lives. Hearing God's word and seeking his face in prayer, having a thirst in the soul, that was not present. Faith in Christ, ladies and gentlemen, can be theoretical only. It's got to go deeper than that. It's got to touch the hearts. Let me ask you a question this morning. Would you hear the Apostle Paul saying, I would have you know? I would have you know the facts, the truth, so that you can practice self examination. So I could get alone with myself and ask that question Am I really a believer? Have I really taken hold of Christ? Do I really believe that he died for my sins? That he was buried and that he rose again from the dead supernaturally. Do I truly believe? Or is it just something I grew up with? It's just a little philosophy, a a theoretical thing. It's got to be more than that. Paul's appeal to fully embrace the gospel. Now, notice, secondly, Paul, after he gives this appeal, he outlines the gospel. Notice Paul's outline of the gospel in verses 3 and 4. First of all, I want you to notice uh, two things. Number one, the supreme elements. He says, I delivered to you of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried and that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. Paul says these things are of first importance. You know, the Bible teaches many, many important doctrines, but some things are weightier than that is, of the utmost importance, than others. Jesus himself said that. He told the Pharisees, you tithe mint, dill, and cummin, but you forget the weightier matters of the law, justice, mercy, faithfulness. Let me put it this way. Our eschatological views on the return of Christ are not as important and not as weighty as these three hallmarks of our faith that Paul mentions. I'm amazed sometimes how Christians can get caught up in such small, infinitesimal stuff when they open the Bible. How much did Goliath's sword weigh? How many years ago was the Exodus? How many miles did Jews travel on a Sabbath day? Now the centerpiece is Christ died For your sins. He was buried and he was raised on the third day. And the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ is the very heart of Christianity. And the whole of Christianity rests on the fact of Christ's resurrection. Once again, our beliefs have to go beyond the mere theoretical to the exercise of authentic, saving faith. That's the supreme elements of the gospel. Now, I want you to notice the foundation of sacred Scripture. Paul makes it clear that sacred Scripture is the foundation of these truths. He says it twice, once in verse 3 and once in verse 4. You notice that about Jesus all the way through his life. He fulfilled Scripture. He was determined that every activity of his fulfilled sacred Scripture. After his resurrection on the road to Emmaus in Luke's Gospel, chapter 24... He said to the two men that were walking who were downcast, O foolish men, slow of heart to believe in all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary for the Christ to suffer these things and to enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them the things concerning himself in all the scriptures. You know, we have Easter egg hunts on Easter. has a biblical foundation because when we go to the scripture we find what Reggie Kidd calls Easter eggs that is little parts all the way through from Genesis to the end that point to Jesus in the Old Testament you can see the Lord Jesus in Genesis 22 where God told Abraham to sacrifice his own son And then he stopped him right before he did it. And God provided a lamb in the thicket. That is a picture of the Lord Jesus. You can see him in Psalm 16, where the psalmist is downcast, and yet he has the hope, you will not leave me in the grave, but you will raise me up. That is the Lord Jesus. You can see him in Psalm 22. The suffering servant pouring out his heart. With his life ebbing away, you can see him in Isaiah 53. The suffering servant who gave his life as a ransom for many. These are the best Easter eggs there are. Little pictures all the way through the Old Testament that point to Jesus. God's word is powerful and sharper than a double-edged sword. Jesus made it clear that everything takes place in order and according to the fulfillment of God's word. He also made it clear that people build their lives on one foundation of his word or another foundation, which is shaky sand, and that is some worldly philosophy. So You can't go through life saying that's your truth or that's truth for you, not me. No, there's either real truth or there isn't. And the gospel is true. So, Paul outlines the gospel for us, the first and foremost things. Now, notice with me, thirdly, Paul's list of resurrection appearances in verses five through seven. I want you to notice the quality and the quantity, as well as the duration of these witnesses. The quality of these witnesses first. These people were not strangers to the Lord, many of these knew the Lord, especially. The disciples. In fact, one of them, James, was the younger half-brother of our Lord. And so the point is, the testimony of a credible eyewitness is bulletproof evidence in a court of law, in a legal matter. How much more in the case of Jesus' resurrection? And I remind you that the apostles all went to their death based on the fact of the resurrection. the quantity of appearances. Jesus didn't make a single appearance to a select few. We find that in many religious sects. For people who are said to have a special experience, no, he appeared both publicly and privately to numerous times. Paul tells us that he appeared to more than 500 people at one time. That's really an amazing thing, isn't it? Something that is not stated here, but also is stated in Acts, is that he did this over a 40-day period. Now, one would think that over a 40-day period, with all of these people professing this, that if it weren't true, somebody would have come forward. Said this isn't true. And it's certainly understandable that somebody would have said, I don't want to die for this, if it's a hoax. No, Paul gives this list of appearances to remind us of the evidence of Christ being raised from the grave. But you know something, all the evidence in the world will never convince someone. It's got to be the Spirit of God moving on your heart. Paul gives us a reminder of the importance of the gospel, to fully embrace it, not to toy with it, not to go through life treating it lightly. Paul tells us the outline of the gospel, the central, most important items, that Christ died for me. He was buried and he rose again. He tells us about the appearances of Christ, the witnesses of Christ, and the duration of his time on the earth. But finally, what I want you to notice is Paul's personal testimony in verses 8 through 11. He says, last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared to me also. It's kind of a puzzling description, one untimely born. The figure suggests being born at the wrong time, too late or too early. The Greek word is ektroma, ordinarily referred to as an abortion, as a miscarriage. Or a premature birth. In other words, a life unable to sustain itself. A hopeless situation. I find great comfort in that. I find great comfort in Paul's personal testimony. And I do so for three reasons. Number one, it reminds me that seeing is not believing. Paul, as one untimely born, never saw the Lord Jesus during his earthly ministry. But the Lord Jesus saw him. And the Lord Jesus revealed himself to him from heaven. And ladies and gentlemen, brothers and sisters, he reveals himself to you and me when we believe. All he asks is that we give ourselves to him. Trust and believe. It reminds me that seeing is not believing in the Christian life. Secondly, it reminds me that God can save and rescue anyone, no matter how far from him they may be. Paul thought himself unfit to be an apostle. He says so. I've run across Christians and I have felt in my own life. God, why did you bother with me? And can you truly forgive all of my sins, including this? Nevertheless, Paul never doubted his apostleship. One place he called himself the chief of sinners. He saw himself as the least of the apostles because he persecuted Christ's church. So when I look at the Apostle Paul, I realize God can save and rescue anyone. Let me challenge you with that, those of us who have perhaps sons or daughters. Who may not know the Lord. Maybe they grew up hearing the faith, but they've departed from it. I know Diane and I have grieved and we've hurt in our own family. I thought about starting a small group just so we could share our lives together over the pain of our children departing the faith. But it does happen. I pray they would come back. And there's great hope that the Lord can save Anyone, no matter how far they may stray from him. Thirdly, it reminds me that there is hope, no matter how hopeless I may see myself or my circumstances. Perhaps some of you today feel hopeless and helpless. Some of us may feel like it'd be better if I had not been born. Because there is so much anger or bitterness, or confusion down deep inside of my heart. And I'm trying to find relief. I don't know how to love or to receive love. I don't know how I'm going to emerge from this. Maybe you've had thoughts of suicide. I know I felt that way when I was younger. My dad killed himself, and a little boy always wants to follow his dad. And when he's not there, there is an emptiness, there is an insecurity that can be so deep that you could stick a boot in it. And you go to things like Indian guides, Boy Scouts, and there's no man there. And you can grow up insecure, angry and bitter, all the time saying, why, God? You don't understand. You could be confused about your own identity and who you are. But I love the Apostle Paul because no one was more hopeless than him. The bitter, angry man who would kill Christians and incarcerate them, he met the Lord Jesus on the road to Damascus. And then he has the nerve to say, I labored more than all the other apostles. I, the one who didn't even see him face to face. But I was introduced to him by faith, supernaturally, when Christ came into my life. And ladies and gentlemen, the issue is not how Paul got converted, but that Paul was converted. And then he put his faith and trust in the risen Christ. And he gave his life to him and it submitted to him. I began to realize this is the most important thing. How else do you explain a man who put up with so much? How else do you explain a man who was stoned to death in Iconium, but then got up from the rocks and went back into the city to share the good news? What is it that makes this man tick? It's the risen Christ inside of him. And so I say to you tenderly this morning, you're not hopeless one who feels the most hopeless and helpless is often the very one who is a target for salvation. I read a little article the other day about the shooting that happened up at our sister church in Nashville, Tennessee, Covenant Presbyterian. I don't know the pastor. His name is Chad Scruggs. I've heard him preach a few times. I recommended that church when my daughter moved up to Nashville. The other day, he had his little girl's funeral, Haley, who was nine, one of the victims. And I tried to put myself in his shoes. He had one daughter and three boys. And I imagined the darkness that he felt was deep. And he made a comment. He spoke at her funeral. He made a comment. He said, after this happened, And the church is on a hill, if you've ever been there. It's on a hill with a school, up on a high hill. After it happened, he said, I don't believe I can ever go up that hill again. And in his devotional life, the Lord spoke to his heart and said, if you don't go up that hill, then the enemy wins. And he was able to have supernatural courage. Not only to go to his little girl's funeral, but to speak at it. Ladies and gentlemen, 2,000 years ago, our Lord Jesus went up the hill of Calvary. And he laid down his life and he bled to death so that atonement would be made for all of your sins, past, present, so that you would discover who God created you to be in truth and that you could live your life in a manner where you could enjoy the Lord with great joy. Peter says inexpressible joy as he guides you through this life of difficulty and trauma often. If you don't know the Lord Jesus, I pray that his spirit would touch your heart today with this truth and that you would embrace him as your Lord and Savior for the rest of your life. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the simple yet profound truth of the gospel, of the death and the burial and the resurrection of of your Son, our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. And I pray, Lord, that your Spirit even now would move on all of our hearts and that you would save those who are far away and those that feel hopeless and helpless, those that are confused, and those that have been looking for something all of their lives. I pray that you would be found by them that you would reveal them yourself to them. And Lord, to all of us, help us to take the gospel seriously as we live out our days in these United States. Bless us to that end now. We make our prayer in Jesus' name.